Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 430 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, the second instalment of a two-part interview, Juliet Jilks Romero speaks with Anne Morgan about telling history's forgotten stories, writing about intersectionality, chasing down inconvenient truths and the experience of taking up a writing residency at one of the UK's most revered theatres. You can hear the first part of this conversation in the preceding episode, number 429. We rejoin Juliet and Anne as they begin to discuss how Juliet applied the research skills she'd honed as a journalist to presenting historical events on the stage. Juliet Jilks Romero is an award-winning writer for stage and screen, who was writer in residence of the UK's National Theatre for 2022-23. to In this second part of our conversation for Writers Aloud, she explores some of the deeper themes in her work and considers what it means to hold a residency at one of the UK's most prestigious performance institutions. One of the things that I really love about your writing, and it's so skillful, is you do build a lot of research in. There's a lot of material. Your play The Whip, for example, set in 1833, around the time when the abolition of slavery was on the table, lots of angry debates about that in Parliament, people putting all sorts of sides, and all kinds of controversial proposals being put forward about how to manage this, whether it should or shouldn't happen. There's a lot of really quite dense historical material attached to that play and yet you manage to weave that in in a way that is engaging that is satisfying that is is powerful that speaks to people and put not just the side of the argument that I know you're on but also the other side of the argument and show how powerfully persuasive that logic can be um, even if it's something that you vehemently disagree with how do you go about getting that balance? How do you do that? I think the most important thing about stories is characters and the humanity of the characters. And I know that as a writer, every character I create, I have to understand them. I have to be their own defence lawyer. I enjoy putting my strongest arguments in the mouths of those I disagree with. <laughs> it's so important. Because if you don't, if, or if you can't conceive of that, the work becomes agitprop. Yeah. And it becomes manipulation. To me, that the theme was too important to lose an audience because I was only prepared to go down my perception and path. But let's face it, I'm, de- I'm a descendant of the transatlantic slave trade. Mm-hmm. You know, my forefathers were taken to the Caribbean and were, were forced to work until death. So obviously none of that is lost on me. I think being a journalist taught me a certain amount of objectivity as well. But I like to think of it as my calling card. It's really important to me. Is that balance, actually? That, I was thinking of it, that BBC balance, or is the yeah. idea of putting both sides of the story. Yeah. And you do it beautifully without it feeling contrived. Yeah. Because you've got to be able to occupy a space of people that you disagree with. And, you know, when I think of, you know, Hyde Villiers in the whip, 
everything he says makes sense. He's quite right. Yeah, yeah. But I really have to get behind his eyes. Why is abandoning this institution a bad thing for the country and for empire? Mm-hmm. I had to understand that. What I also did, because the House of Commons had this amazing library, and I read Hansard from 1833 to 1834, read the debates, heard the voices, and the arguments, you know, pro and, and con, and they were fascinating arguments. I mean, I saw um, a committee report about comparing the African slave to Scottish peasants. Who could handle money best? What will slaves do with, 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 with candlesticks and, and bedsteads and, 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 and silk, you know? Does the Scottish peasant drink more alcohol than, than, than the Negro? Apparently he does. You know, I, I was blown away by this. And one of the scenes is very much based mm. on the committee report mm. that I read. I'm a big fan of Hilary Mantel. Mm-hmm. I think Wolf Hall is amazing. And there's a scene there where the king is having this nightmare about his brother. Because he's married his brother's wife, Catherine of Aragon. Mm-hmm. And Cromwell is sent for. Now, this is, you know, Hilary has just created this scene. We don't know whether he entered the man's bedchamber and soothed him because of a nightmare, but because of our understanding of character, she was able to bring all of their proclivities, you know, what we know from history, and then imagine that space where he came and he told the king that this was not a nightmare, this was prophecy. And he puts his hand on his shoulder, and you're not supposed to touch him. And these attendants in the room, they withdraw into the shadows because they're like, we don't want to be involved, he just touched the king. But I believe the scene because of the truth of the scene. So for the whip, it's about finding the truth. You've got to find the kernel of truth. Yeah. So you can, you can interpret history provided... The kernel of truth exists. And that's where the research comes in. Mm. Because obviously the whole place, you've got to throw the research over the shoulder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you've got to keep the essence of it. Yeah, because also what you, what, I think one of the tools that you use really well to achieve this is the way you, you write about intersectionality in that play. So many writers, if they were taking on this subject matter, would focus on the issue itself is big enough. Yeah. And yet you manage to bring in and, and as a result demonstrate the shared humanity and the shared suffering, but also the boundaries between people. Mm. The mill workers, mm. for example, well, there is some comparison to be drawn mm. between them and, and you know, some of the things that some of the slaves are going through. Mm. And so they, there's some commonality, commonality that's found between mm. certain characters because of that gender. Mm. Women are able to band together against the patriarchy in certain ways. Um, so bringing people together in that web of some of the injustices that bind them across other barriers feels like quite a powerful tool. It, you know, I, it was something that I kind of recognised. Once I'd kind of come up with my cast, and I think that some of it was, was kind of intuition, some by design, because what was fascinating by, about 1833, because we think of people in the past as separate to us, 
what I read was I thought they're just like us. 1833 was an extraordinary year in British history and British politics. So you had the Reform Act to get, you know, middle class, working class men into the House of Commons as MPs. You had the Factory Act to reduce the hours that children, not remove them completely, but reduce the, the, the abuse of hours that these children were working. When I read cases of children some being kicked to death, punished in terrible ways, falling asleep at the loom. And I'm like, wow, this, how is this different to slavery? There was the Catholic Emancipation Act. The play was getting on a bit. I had to, I had to <laughs> cut my cloth. I had to let lose 30 pages, so a lot of that got cut down. And then we had abolition. This inflection point, this collision, was astonishing. So... British history did a lot of the work for me. I just had to step into that space. Mm. What also helped was that HMRC had put out this amazing tweet. Congratulations, congratulating the British public on helping to end slavery because taxpayers' money was used to pay off. Um, <laughs> the, isn't it <laughs> Who signed that off? You know. <laughs> Who knew? Which history book have you ever seen this in? Yeah. We um, all effectively help everybody that who was working up until yeah. 2015. Their tax money went into paying off the compensation loan, which was the equivalent of just over 40% of the country's GDP. This is what the British government borrowed to pay off the slave owners who then received the free labour for four years of the slaves because they were forced into unpaid apprenticeships. So not only were they making the equivalent of millions, they were then getting free labour, but they weren't expected to feed or clothe the apprenticeship, mm-hmm. apprentice, you know, apprentices. So their lives were, were even worse. Mm-hmm. In which history book? So when I did history as a child, the only history that I saw on the transatlantic slave trade was that traditional textbook. You've got this like a lithogram, you know, of, of the bodies in, in, in the bottom of, a, of, of the hull of a boat. And that was it. And I was the only black girl in class. So I'm looking at this thinking, there's got to be more to this story. And everyone's kind of moving on. And I'm like, wait a minute, you know, and, and not really knowing what to ask because we'd kind of moved on. So I, I confess there was an anger. Yeah. You know, and I thought, I've got to do something. Why don't people know about this? And I just assumed that there'd be hundreds of people trying to write about this. I was the only one. That blew me out of the water. It was like, because I, I thought, I've got to get my skates and I've got to get to the House of Commons Library. I applied for the Inform- you know, um, Freedom of Information Act. I saw the actual documentation about this loan and when it was paid off. And I still couldn't believe it that I, a descendant of the, of this trade, my tax money <laughs> went into paying off this loan. Adrian Charles interviewed me on, on Radio 5 Live about this. And he couldn't get over it. And he just kept repeating it. He, he couldn't understand how he didn't know about this. Yeah. So I then ended up doing a lot of radio and television just around that fact. Even Canadian radio I, I, I was on and everyone was asking 
The thing about it though, and again, it's that ability to pull back and be objective. For good or bad, and for good, the British government, and it wasn't out of compassion as such, but they realised that the institution wasn't fit for purpose. There were uprisings, they watched what happened in Haiti, they thought, let's get out of this, let's end this. You know, the petitions that were raised, particularly by English women in this country, it was very much driven because you know by by I would say that of a real feminine impetus. I mean, Wilberforce got a lot of the credit, but it was the women. So when we took the cast to the House of Commons, and we had the actor who played Boyd stand, you know, at the dispatch box. In fact, everyone got a turn. The speaker's chair on the back is the petition sack, and this is where these petitions from around the country. We had Mary Prince who was received by um, a women's group in, in Birmingham and she was allowed to speak around the country. People, when they met Mary and heard the stories, we're back to stories now, they were able to relate. It's about the storytelling. Yeah. Put themselves in Mary's shoes or in the shoes of, of, of a slave and they came to think, this is not fit for purpose. We can't continue this. So the British government eventually responded now slaves are property you know you you want to sell a car you want to be compensated this is how they saw it they had to compensate the the, the slave owners the same idea was floated at congress in america but they couldn't agree and that led to the civil war thousands died so while i was writing i was also weighing that up so that allowed me to take that bird's eye view as well so for as, as angry as I felt about certain issues and what I wanted to show was the unseemly wrangling over how to achieve this. Mm. And, and my, my, you know, my character Boyd, who's chief whip, you know, he is eventually railroaded into a compromise that is not natural to him and certainly not to those who, who feel that he's an ally. But I still marvel at the fact that it got done and that in America they couldn't do this. Mm-hmm. And we see the repercussions of that civil war today because what then came as a result of that were Lincoln pronouncing edict for the slaves to be free in the South, and he had the Jim Crow laws, then a lot of the Confederate soldiers became Ku Klux Klan and would hunt, you know, freed blacks in the South. And that lasted a long time. Mm-hmm. The history of lynchings, a direct link to the American Civil War. We saw none of that. What we saw in the Caribbean, because obviously slavery was ended on British soil, I forget the date now, and that was because of um, a a legal case, uh, a young um, runaway called Somerset, and it was then decided that slavery should be illegal on English soil. So then what you'd get was a lot of runaway slaves from the Americas coming here. That's a whole history that people don't know about. And I just think it's a real shame, you know, there's a lot of people who talk about woke. History is woke. We're teaching our children to feel guilt about what happened in the past. No, these are extraordinary stories. What do these stories tell us about who we are? And that they're stories that haven't been told. That they haven't been told. Yeah. But they point to our humanity. They point to our compassion. 
they, they point to the ability of peoples to come together. I mean, I'm now writing a, sequ- uh, a you know, what comes after, in a sense, and about the cotton workers who preferred to starve rather than handle cotton picked by Negro slaves. What a history! People don't know about this, but I'm, I'm, I'm doing it theatrically, so they will know they about will it. Absolutely. You know, and, and, and how revolutionary that was. The idea that this country was divided into north and, and south, in, in, in a sense, because the British government at first weren't sure whether to back Lincoln or the Confederates, because cotton was king. I mean, this was a huge industry. And because of the cotton mills, it brought a huge amount of revenue into this country. But in the end, the humanity of what was happening became more important. And unless we tell these stories, and this is why I do enjoy going back into history, looking for these inconvenient truths, excavating all of that, it's not about being woke. It's about sharing and allowing people to celebrate the formation of what we know as as modern Britain. People have forgotten about those cotton workers. That should never be forgotten. Now, not all your writing is focused on historical events. You have also taken on the story of Medea um, and on a modern day, or reworking that Mm. story. How how did you go about it? That's such a massive story. It's such a story that has been told in so many ways through so many centuries. I would find that really terrifying as a writer to take on. How did you approach it? So, the wonderful Tom Littler, because I think he, he, he was amazing, artistic director of German Street, and he showed incredible leadership during lockdown. It was his idea to gather... 15 female playwrights to respond to the letters that Ovid wrote about the 15 heroines of Greek mythology. And Tom approached me as one of the writers. And I confess, I was quite overwhelmed by it. And he sent a list of of the women. And I mean, I'll be honest, I mean, my knowledge of Greek mythology... I mean, I've heard of Icarus, Hercules, Aphrodite, but Medea stood out because most people know Medea's story. I said, if I do this, I'll do Medea. So you chose Medea? I chose Medea. I chose Medea and I thought, when I read about her, why on earth did I choose Medea? Number one, there have been quite a few stage productions about Medea. Everyone has done this. And done her quite well. And then her story was so difficult, challenging, unpalatable. This woman who murders her, her, her sons because she's been jilted by her lover. And I'm still trying to process why on earth I chose her. And I know that I chose her because I felt that of all of the, the women I read about, she had the most agency. And I couldn't understand her story. I couldn't understand it. So I began to dig around, researching her. Why would she do this? 
Then I found history about the Corinthians. So when Euripides wrote his version of Medea, it was the Corinthians who murdered her sons. Medea was seen as the barbarian other and, you know, she was not welcome. But when I saw that it was men who had murdered her sons and it wasn't the mother, but there was pressure put on Euripides to change it from the Corinthians to the mother, I thought, wow, she was well and truly gaslit. Burnt to a toast. I thought, that's not right. You know, when you think of Cleopatra, who apparently was a really intelligent woman, very political, also gaslit through history. So I began to look at her story, look at Medea, and I thought, wow, this needs serious reflection and retelling. So in my version, it's not clear at the end how the sons died. So, you know, I've made her a modern-day refugee who is no longer welcome. And Jason has met a younger woman who he wants to marry, and she's truly thrown onto the trash heap, if you like. And she's making trouble, and she's not going quietly. And where she's living is raided, and we hear gunshots. But so we don't see the deed. But she is armed. So in a sense, it's like, does she take the lives of her children to prevent, to protect them from a mob? Or do people enter and take out her sons? But I had to leave that question mark because I, I really wanted the audience to think about it. And I also really wanted them to think about, was she capable of this? All of the productions that, that I read about were set on the premise that she killed her own children because she'd been jilted. That wasn't the original case. Mm. I find that outrageous. Mm. So even though I had decided to do the story before I actually found this material, I then felt, I breathed a sigh of relief. I thought, now I have a premise. Now I have something to work with. This is another inconvenient truth, yes. actually, even though within fiction, yes. as far as we know. Yes. Um, you're, you're, it's these inconvenient truths yeah. that, that really get you yeah. you know, as yeah. far as storytelling goes. Yeah. yeah, and how truth can be gaslit. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, and and how we, 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 we live by um, the past, how it shapes our future, and often in wrong ways. You know, the things that we take at face value from history mm. can really, you know, when you think of sectarian conflict often rooted in the interpretation of stories from the past. Mm, yeah, yeah. You know. Now, we're sitting in quite a special place. Can you tell us where we are and how you came to be here? So, we are sitting in my office at the National Theatre Studio. And this building, I think it started off as the original working place for the National Theatre before it was properly built on the South Bank because they, so these were all prefabs and it was housed at the Old Vic and then as you say so the Old Vic is right next door to the studio 
So this is really steeped in history. And on the top floor, you've got writers' rooms. I have a very nice one, which looks onto a roof garden with, with grass. And I can see the stage door for the Old Vic. And I'm fascinated by the comings and goings. But what a journey for me. Um, and we should say you're here as the writer in residence yes, of the National yes, Theatre. Yes, um, And again, being asked, offered this, was really, you know, on many levels, profoundly important. I'm going to say the word moving because it is, because this, this industry, this, this, this life we choose as writers, you know, it is tough. Now, when they reopened the, when they built the, the National um, on the South Bank, my, so by that time I was born in East London, we moved to Suffolk, my parents, who were very much into the arts and, and culture, had a subscription to this new theatre and brought my brother and I down as children to see Galileo when it opened there. And we loved it. It was a fantastic production. Michael Gambon played Galileo. And, that, and that's how I was introduced to Brecht, actually. I, was, I mean, I must have been about, I was quite young, 10 or, or 9 or 10. But the, the fact that they drove us down to London to see this. And now here I am. I, I, I just, yeah, I, I find that feeling quite difficult to articulate. I'm very grateful to my parents because what they were very good at doing, you know, my brother and I are first generation, you know, we were born here, but they were very determined that we were comfortable in cultural and artistic spaces. A lot of kids don't get taken to the theatre or museums. Uh, my parents took us everywhere. There was a Commonwealth Institute at the time don't think it, it no longer exists but we would visit there be taken on tours to see the, the different countries and the you know how people lived and for as a child again that sparks the imagination we were taken to the theater they took us to the to the national and i guess as a child sitting in those stores watching galileo i would never have imagined that one day i would be here I mean, you know, my sadness is that my dad isn't here because he was such a supporter. In some ways, I feel as if he knows because this kind of thing was important to him. This is very important. And it's, it feels like a legacy thing because of my heritage. And I'll be really honest, you know, when I think of whoever, some forefather who was thrust into the hull of a, of, of a slave ship and taken to the Caribbean... And now here I am, you know, in this national institution of storytelling. That, for me, is, is, is amazing. But that journey doesn't stop. Because as you know, as a writer, it never stops. It's ongoing. Because I, I do feel that we are on a mission. It is important to be able to add to how we see each other and our lived experience and to tell these stories because these are the things that truly bring us together.
That was Juliet Jilks Romero in conversation with Anne Morgan. You can find out more about Juliet on her website, julietjilksromero.co.uk. And that concludes episode 430, which was recorded and produced by Anne Morgan. Coming up in episode 431, Sonia Falero tells Julia Copus about three little things that have been significant in her writing career. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.